Welcome to episode 11 of Speaking Up. This is a podcast about people standing up for the truth, stepping up on the issues of the day, and speaking up when it matters most. I am your host, Miles Taylor, and we are hosting this today on Callin, a social podcasting app that allows us to take questions from listeners. My guest today is someone who is used to speaking up on issues that matter. In fact, he is a podcast host himself. If you've not listened to Burn the Boats, you should. So this is a Padawan interviewing a Jedi today. <laughs> uh, Ken's used to doing the interviewing. I'm going to do that today. But also, uh, I'm very grateful for our guest because he's someone who served this country as a naval aviator and after his military service has continued to go out there and speak up on the issues of the day, including uh, what we're seeing in Ukraine, including issues like domestic radicalization. So I'm very excited to welcome Ken Harbaugh to the program. Ken, good to have you here virtually. It's it's great to be with you, Miles. Is this two aviators in a row? Am I mistaken? Yeah, yeah. I, I like to do the double <laughs> aviator uh, move. It'll be an aviator trifecta next week, I think, if I pull in a surprise fly man. So, uh, yeah, we'll see. Cool, cool. Well, I glad, to, don't know, glad Ken, to be with you. What what was your call sign? Because uh, yeah, I don't know if I can uh, if I can refer to you that way, but I need a nickname for you, and I don't well, have one. D- does this have the explicit rating on it? Uh, what kind uh, of show? What kind we, of show we are we doing today? On, we, we let you say whatever <laughs> you want on this show. Uh, my informal call sign was Pooh Bear, and we don't need to go into details. Oh man, it's, it's, <laughs> it, it sounds G rated, but clearly it's not, folks. Ken, uh, 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 I want to start off where we've started a lot of our episodes, which is Ukraine. I mean, today I do mm-hmm. want to dig in with you on domestic extremism, because I feel like you've got a really unique perspective there, and you've spent more time than other veterans in understanding this phenomenon, and frankly, understanding why, in some people's eyes, January 6th was potentially just practice compared to what we could see down the road. But before all that, Um, Look, let's start with the topic of the day. Let's talk about Ukraine. We have seen in the past 72 hours graphic photographs out of Ukraine of civilian atrocities perpetrated by the Russians, civilians who've been shot and killed with their hands tied behind their backs. I mean, this is not the fun, light stuff to start a program with, but it's, it's what we're forced to confront and we can't ignore it. What do you make of what's happening right now? And, and what are the implications for Russia of this dark turn in the war? I think it's it's just gruesome. It's war crimes, pure and simple. Uh, and I think tactically, the war has reached a new phase. Uh, and we can talk about that. But I, I don't think we can let that eclipse the the atrocities in Bukha and, and elsewhere in Mariupol of the last uh, several several weeks. I mean... What do we really mean when we say never again if we don't hold those to account? I don't know what that's going to take because the those who are ultimately accountable have layers and layers of protection and you know armies defending them. But I do think we have the beginnings of um, of an investigation. We know the units who are there. Uh, the German SIGINT just released some radio traffic between Russian units talking about the massacres. I mean, we keep all of that. We begin the the investigations, and and we don't we don't let it rest. I mean, this to me is what never again means. You 
you hold those accountable, you keep the records, uh, and you don't let the exigencies of warfare eclipse the, the magnitude of the crimes conducted during that war. I mean, this war is going to keep going. And of course, we have to keep resupplying. But uh, we can't forget in the, in the heat of one battle, the, the atrocities, the massacres of past battles. You know, news this morning was that the United Nations has suspended Russia from the Human Rights Council. I think a lot of people around the world are scratching their heads and saying, wait, Russia was on the Human Rights Council? Uh, now, you know, you know these issues better than anyone. You're a student of international relations and, and foreign affairs. Uh, is this a significant move at all or, or more of a symbolic one? Well, I think it's mostly symbolic if you look at past membership in the Human Rights Council and included uh, Gaddafi's Libya. It included other incredibly bad actors, but I, I don't think that's to take away from the power of symbolism. The fact that everyone is talking about it means something, and it helps to put the lie to those who are trying to either deflect or cover up. There's this this growing chorus of of skeptics who suggest entirely cynically that this was either a false flag or that the Ukrainians did it uh, or that it was uh, artillery fire from Ukrainian battalions. Artillery fire does not tie people's hands behind their backs and shoot them in the head. I mean, the evidence is it's clear as day and we need to maintain the drumbeat to counter the mis and disinformation that is pouring out trying to trying to mislead people and and change the narrative. Do you think, Ken, that this will change countries' perspectives on what to do in terms of support to Ukraine? I mean, will this galvanize public opinion in such a way to have them pressure their governments to do more for Ukraine? I mean, Western democracies are doing a lot, but but still, you've got Zelensky coming out, out publicly almost every day saying, we need more. We need more. Will this be a catalyst? To that? I think it. I think it will to a certain degree. And the reason I say that is we have seen it work already. I mean, if you recall in the in the opening phases of this invasion, our government was reluctant to restrict imports of of Rus- Russian gas uh, for fears of the inflationary effect that would have. And it was the American people. It was the t- democratic process working that compelled our government to do the right thing, to do the moral thing. You see the Baltic states already, uh, as a reaction to these massacres, cutting off the supply of, of Russian gas. Uh, and that's, that's what democracies do when there is a moral outrage that, that reaches a level that compels governments to do the right thing. So, yes, I do. Um, in some sense, it's too little, too late, but the, the Ukrainians are still fighting for their lives, so it's not too late. Uh, we need to send uh, everything that they're asking for to be able to defend themselves, because I, I think we both agree that their defense of Ukraine is really a defense of liberty around the world. You know, that's, uh, I, I think, a topic that pretty soon here is going to take us to talking about domestic issues, but sticking on Ukraine at the moment before we make that transition. Um, you know, there was something interesting that happened yesterday when the U.S. came out and sanctioned two of Putin's daughters. Now, most folks would look at that and say, well, 
it doesn't really matter. I mean, it's not like Putin's two daughters live in the United States and um, who knows if they have assets that are reachable from these sanctions. What was more interesting, though, is that Putin has kept his family life exceptionally private. To me, this looked like a move of the Russian government to say, or sorry, this looks like a move of the U.S. government to say, look, uh, we're not just going to add sanctions to your family. Um, we're bringing this, them into this and exposing them um, in, in a personal way. It felt like a message to Putin rather than uh, some practical means of pressuring, pressuring the Russian government. Yeah, I think it's it's symbolic more than anything. I don't think it hurts the material war effort. But like I said, symbols matter. We have to make this hurt and and we have to as much as possible target those who are who are in positions of influence around Putin. I'm I'm the first one to acknowledge that the sanctions we've imposed are hurting ordinary Russians. Uh, but it is nothing, nothing compared to the agony that Ukrainians are going through. And sure, part of sanctions are the moral pressure they apply, but part of them are also their, um, the way they can starve a war machine. And I think that's often overlooked too. Yeah, ordinary Russians are hurting, but in the process, we, we're helping to starve the, the Russian war machine of the resources it needs to continue prosecuting this war. You've talked about this a good bit on your podcast, Burn the Boats, and, and listeners should know that Ken's got an award-winning podcast and they should tune in. And you've been vocal, Ken, that you think now we need to be doing more. Uh, we shouldn't just pat ourselves on the back. Tactically, what more can be done right now to show support for Ukraine without ensnaring the United States in a, in a World War III. What's that delta? Where, where yeah. can we be acting more decisively? Well, that's a great question. And I don't have access to the, the classified briefs, and I'll be the first to say that a lot more is likely happening than, than we're ever going to hear about. Uh, and some of it is open source. If you just look at, for example, the published tracks of the E3s, the airborne warning and control planes that, that NATO and the U.S. operates, they're flying round-the-clock missions between the borders of Poland and Ukraine. That's not an accident. We are doing things that you will never hear about, and we should. But I believe when the guy on the front lines in the trenches asks for help, you err on the side of that that bias for action and, and helping. And the guy in the trenches is President Zelensky. And if he's asking for uh, anti-air and thermal imagery, uh, we send it. The risk, of course, is, I'll use your word, ensnaring the U.S. and NATO in a, a confrontation with Russia. But I think we go right up to that line. Uh, and I, th I think we stop short of <clears throat> imposing a no-fly zone, and I can explain why. And that's as much for uh, practical, tactical reasons as it is for geopolitical reasons. Uh, but if the Ukrainians are asking for thermal imagers, send them thermal imagers. Send them three javelins for every Russian tank. Uh, give them the chance to fight for themselves. Let me ask you about how the war is being treated back home. We... Uh yesterday talked a good bit in my circles about some pretty egregious signaling from the GOP caucus 
in the House. As you saw, I'm sure there were six Republicans who decided to vote against investigating Russia for war crimes. There was a bill that would have required the State Department that does will require the State Department to uh, investigate and keep any evidence of Russian troops committing civilian atrocities and war crimes on the ground. And six Republican members of Congress voted against it. This is what I've called the pro-Putin wing of the GOP or, uh, you know, Vladimir Putin's cover-up crew. Uh, What do you make of this? And to what degree are pro-Putin Republicans complicit in some of what we're seeing on TV every day? Well, that's two separate questions. On the first, I'm not sure what to make of it, because I take great encouragement from the fact that the vast majority of Americans can tell right from wrong on this, and that the Republicans who can't are uh, don't seem to, to have a persuasive argument for, for the vast majority of Americans, certainly for, for my neighbors and you know, a number of my family members who, who are themselves Republican. Um, in terms of Republican complicity, that's a different question. Because here we have to, and you don't have to reach very far back, but you know, I'm old enough to remember when the leader of the Republican Party was impeached for extorting the president of Ukraine and withholding the delivery of uh, defensive weapons uh, until um, that, that President Zelensky delivered dirt on a political rival. Um, I say old enough to remember tongue-in-cheek because it was not that long ago. And we ought to be able to do two things at once and hold every Republican who who was complicit in that by not voting to impeach, hold them to account. Uh, otherwise, you know, what what good are elections? There, there are chance to register our, our disdain for that kind of thing. Uh, and I'm not going to forget. I'm not going to forget the Republicans, not just the six who yesterday or the day before voted against the uh, the re- requiring the state department to to document these war crimes but the the long history of appeasement of encouraging russia of of encouraging a president who threatened to pull out of nato of letting him get away with extorting the president of ukraine over weaponry to defend himself against russia uh, I, I don't know how much more we as a people could be be offended by something in light of what's going on right now. It's outrageous. I'm, I'm glad you brought up NATO because folks are so stuck in their political silos that I don't think they believe it when they hear that Donald Trump would have pulled out of the greatest Western defense alliance the world has ever seen, that he would run to our adversaries instead of our allies. But, I mean, I I was there. I I can tell you firsthand, he regularly expressed his disdain for NATO and his desire to pull out. And frankly, it was only because of people like John Kelly and Jim Mattis who, you know, kept persuading him not to, in my view, that the United States is still in NATO. Um, You know, it's something certainly a Biden administration would have corrected had the egregious decision been made to run the other way from the alliance. But Trump wanted to do that. He far preferred to spend time with adversary nation states like the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans, 
than he did with our allies. And we, we got very close to that. And, and I think it gives you a really good perspective on what a second Trump term could look like if he runs for president again next year, if he uh, in the next cycle. And if he does get elected, that's going to be high on his list is he wants to create a, a new alliance and one that doesn't look like the United States, one that would have very strange bedfellows. And th that should be alarming to a lot of Americans. Um, you know, I, I, I want to zoom in even more, though, Ken, and, and ask you about that impulse, Trump's authoritarian impulses and the impact it's had on the country. We just heard him say in an interview, I think yesterday, um, Washington Post released an interview where Trump said his only regret about January 6th was that he wasn't part of it uh, on the ground. He said he, the Secret Service told him he couldn't march to the Capitol, but he would have marched to the Capitol, which is sort of a confoundingly egregious thing for him to say is that he wish he'd been in the insurrection crowd. I actually think maybe, maybe that's a criminally damning thing for him to say. Uh, I'll leave that to the January 6th select committee, but all of his talk around the big lie, which folks get tired of hearing, but it's really warped our political system. Um, I noted yesterday that a, a poll found that more than one in 10 Republicans are now mainstream believers in QAnon and some of these conspiracy theories that Trump has promoted in addition to the big lie. I want you to talk about what that means from a national security perspective. Forget politics, forget presidential elections and the Senate and the House, public safety. What does it mean if more than one in 10 Republicans <laughs> believe that Democrats run elite child sex trafficking rings and that, you know, alien humanoids are you know, running politics and deep staters are trying to spy on us. I mean, what does that mean for us? So for me, QAnon is more of a, a die marker than itself an existential threat. My experience with the QAnon crowd is that they're, they're mostly silly play actors indulging uh, in a fantasy. And, and that's not to say that when you have millions of adherents, you're not going to have uh, – a lone wolf pop off here and there and shoot up a pizza parlor. And that's horrible. But the real threat is from those who are organizing, uh, who are plotting and planning for the next January 6th. Uh, and, and some of it is extra legal, but some of it is happening in state houses across the country. Um, if you look through history at the ways in which terrorist movements have achieved long-term success. I mean, one approach is, is capturing territory and holding it. That's pretty hard when you're an insurgent movement, right? By far, the more productive approach, and we have experienced this once before in our history, is capturing a major political party. And the best analog that I can point to is the KKK after the Civil War, which captured a major Southern political party, uh, the Democratic Party, which held the reins of power in South for a century, suppressed minority voters, and was able to terrorize a large part of the country by cementing minoritarian rule. If you look at some of the changes around the country, not just in terms of access to voting, but how votes are counted, and uh, I think it helps to, to invoke Stalin's observation here. He didn't care who voted or how, he cared who counted the votes and how. 
And that's the battle being waged in state houses across the country. And the Republican Party has realized that they they are fighting a rearguard action against demographic change, against cultural change, and that they're no longer going to be able to reign with the majority of the vote. So what's their one outlet? It's creating a framework, a system, uh, a set of laws that can cement minoritarian rule. And that, to me, is the truly terrifying thing about this co-opting of the Republican Party. Well, it's you hit on a very interesting topic here that I, I love the quote about who counts the votes, because that's still what they're trying to do is make sure that there's enough doubt sowed about the electoral process that they can change the laws, commandeer the process in their favor. And that sounds like conspiracy theory on my end, but you've got a great Yahoo News headline today that said uh, they couldn't have written this better. The headline was, Trump hosted a movie night at Mar-a-Lago to premiere an election conspiracy theory film about Mark Zuckerberg starring himself. <laughs> so if you, did, <laughs> you didn't see this in the news, this is a, a, a short film, a 40-minute film that was you know, made by one of Trump's allies that alleges that you know, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg engaged in a plot to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to rig the election. Again, it's largely based on conspiracy theory and, and bogus insinuations. Um, but this is the type of material that his allies are producing to, again, try to have it appeal to the masses, a, a mainstream film uh, that's you know people will take seriously because it's it's flashy and and slick and it's meant to capture their imagination, but also to gently brainwash them. And you've seen this throughout your career, Ken. Disinformation sowed by foreign adversaries to persuade American publics. This is a an ongoing disinformation campaign that, as you note, has been co opted by one of the two major parties in the United States, uh, and they've continued to propagate it. From your experience in the national security community, how, how do you oppose that kind of disinformation campaign? What's effective at getting people unbrainwashed, if you will? Great question. And I, I think we got to be realistic in recognizing that there is a, a certain segment of the population that is, uh, I hate saying it, but too far gone. I mean, when you're really, really deep into the, the QAnon um, vortex, uh, there's, there's probably not a whole lot that can pull you out. But many critical elections in this country and most presidentials are still decided by those swing voters in the middle. And I will never stop believing, I guess because I'm an eternal optimist who believes in my country, uh, that that enough of those folks can be reached and that the truth still matters, and that ultimately it comes down to caring about each other and talking to our neighbors. Uh, I mean, I've learned the hard way that you can spend a hell of a lot of money on TV, on marketing campaigns. You can you know, try to persuade with, with glitzy videos, and you may pick off a few on the margins, but nothing compares to having a conversation with a loved one or you know, with a doctor. Uh, I, I think our our experience through this COVID pandemic is really instructive here. I mean, the people in, in, in my close circle who were vaccine skeptics, the ones who did come around came around not because of 
multi-million dollar ad buys and government PSAs that came around because a doctor they trusted talked to them or a loved one begged them to to reconsider. And I think we need to apply that same sense of urgency in our politics that we applied in trying to save our loved ones from from COVID-19. We need to talk to people about uh, about what's at stake. I worry that we're not we don't have enough time between now and the 22 election, but the real the real war is uh, is the 24 election. If if we're sticking with the analogy, 22 is the battle, but 24 is is just that's going to be the climax of this contest. You know, there's there's one community in particular that is being targeted for domestic radicalization, and and it's American military veterans. Um, you know, this is something that you've looked at very closely, and and. It's groups like the Proud Boys and white supremacist groups that frankly are preying on former service members to try to give them a new cause and a new mission, a, a violent one, a dangerous one, a, a treacherous one that in some cases, uh, you know, avows its interest in uh, undermining the, you know, U.S. government. What have you seen in that space that concerns you? What have you seen that makes you feel like January 6th might be the tip of the iceberg? Yeah, I've I've seen a lot. And let me start by saying I've spent more than a a decade trying to to do right by America's veterans helping lead organizations like, like Team Rubicon. And there is a reason that veterans are targeted by by these groups, why mis and disinformation is intentionally created to focus on on these veteran groups. Uh, it's because veterans, of course, bring the skills and training that they acquired in in the military, often in war zones. But more importantly, they bring a cachet. They still have a cultural currency that very few American. Um, groups retain. There's a reason that veterans are at the center of these militia movements, of these anti-democratic insurrectionist movements, even though they represent an infinitesimal fraction of the total veteran population. They always wind up at the tip of the spear in these organizations because these groups realize the cultural cachet that they bring to the movement. You get someone like Mike Flynn, who at first glance speaks with, with such authority, and he's got the, the three stars on his epaulets. Uh, you got someone like Stuart Rhodes, former paratrooper, founder of the, um, the Oath Keepers, Yale Law degree. People are drawn to that, that veteran status. They, they think it imbues a, a certain... Um, a moral perspective that that has to be listened to, and it's because every veteran has sworn an oath to support and defend the Constitution. And as a as a society, we still respect that tremendously. So, so there's it's not an accident. It's part of a larger strategy of creating a certain moral legitimacy legitimacy for these movements that draws veterans in and puts them at the center 
of, uh, of, of any action. And it's, it's scary. How, how pervasive is, is the threat at this point? I mean, from what you've seen, you talk to, like you said, you've led veterans groups, you, you know almost all the leaders of the major veterans groups around the country, and you also have a very keen awareness of what's happening among some of these extremist groups and, and their efforts to try to recruit from that community. How bad is it at this point? Has there been a high water mark yet? Have we rounded the corner or or you think it's still bubbling under the surface there? Well, we don't really know because during the Trump administration, it was really tough to understand how how these recruiting efforts were permeating through the active duty military. There were some groups and individuals doing great work outside the DOD, like Human Rights First, and and Chris Goldsmith has done some pioneering work on this in trying to understand how people leaving the Department of Defense are are targeted by veterans. But for reasons that are probably obvious, uh, there wasn't a lot of um, self-introspection within DOD about the rise of extremism within the ranks. That is starting to change. Uh, There's a somewhat outdated poll. We need to be doing these much more often, but something like 30% of veterans in the past few months had experienced uh, personally or witnessed um, an act of extremism in their units. Uh, So that's that's an alarming sign. Um, In studies like that, you know, give us an example. I mean, what's uh, what would quali- what would reach that threshold? Yeah, I'd have to go back and look at the actual study, but uh, I mean, I would occasionally see this myself in the form of uh, white nationalist tattoos, um, things like that. Now, yeah. those are be- those are being screened out, uh, but you know, how many times have we heard of a veteran, and maybe this is just in, in my orbit, but it's it's pretty often a veteran getting busted for going online and um, spouting white nationalist uh, credos. Uh, and then you look at the veterans who were wrapped up in the, the January 6th insurrection, or you look at the roles of the Oath Keepers. I mean, the Oath Keepers, an organization of violent anti- democratic organization with thousands upon thousands of members explicitly target. I mean, part of its manifesto is recruiting people who have sworn an oath to the constitution. So ex law enforcement and, and military. Uh, And in a recent leak of their membership roles, there are actually people within the oath keepers with dot mail email addresses. Uh, So it's, it's, it's clearly clearly a problem. Um, and, and for listeners, that means that it's likely that whether they're active duty or reservist, they're, they're, uh, they've still got their official U.S. government military email account uh, that they're tied to. So potentially folks who are still in government that are yeah. engaged. We got to be careful, Miles, because I, I, I feel such an obligation to remind people, even if I've already said it, that the vast majority of veterans uh, aren't drawn to these organizations, want mm. nothing to do with them. There are 17 million veterans in America right now. Uh, but it doesn't take many with, with this, these kinds of backgrounds to create havoc. I mean, you look what Timothy uh, McVeigh and his co-conspirator were able to do in Oklahoma City, uh, the largest mass casualty event in the U.S. between Pearl Harbor 
and 9-11. Um, and it, it proves the point that it doesn't take the radicalization of, of too many to really, really create havoc. And in the military, we have a term for this. We call them force multipliers, right? And veterans within these movements are force, force multipliers. They may be only one of 10, meaning 10% of, of, of the entire organization. Uh, I think the numbers in, among the January 6th uh, indictees are 20% were, were veterans, but they have an outsized impact. They have a disproportionate role in those organizations, both in their ability to draw others in, their ability to provide command and control and leadership. Um, you look at someone like Stuart Rhodes, and you know, I've seen some some unreleased footage of, of him talking to his followers. There's a charisma there. Uh, a, a, it's an unmistakable charisma. It's sick. It's twisted. But it's it's absolutely real, and it is so attractive to a certain subset of veterans. i got to speak to this, too, who are looking for something, who have left the military, they've taken off that uniform, they desperately miss that sense of camaraderie and brotherhood. You add to that the moral injury of, of how we left Afghanistan and the questions we all have about were the buddies we lost, were their lives, like, did they mean nothing? And they are so ripe for exploitation. They are so vulnerable to these kinds of messages, and, and that's going on everywhere. But as we've learned, Ken, from years, you know, two decades at least of counterterrorism uh, against ISIS and Al-Qaeda, you can disrupt that radicalization process by shining a light, right? And, and, and sort of undercutting the lies of these organizations that you're going to find a community and that you're fighting for a righteous cause. And when you shine that light, you can get people to wake up at a minimum, you can get the folks around them too, and try to break that process. Do you see that happening yet here in the United States? Of I, the targeting that's happening to folks by the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. Is there enough being done on, on sort of the counter messaging side? I am so glad you brought that up. There is not enough being done, but there are incredible proofs of what can be done. There are incredible examples of organizations doing it well. Uh, and I've I've talked to quite a few veterans who at one point found themselves at that fork in the road. And they were being drawn either down that path towards extremism and the the false brotherhood and sense of purpose and camaraderie that that presented, or down an alternate path. And I'm biased, of course, because I helped run the organization, but Team Rubicon is such a great example of that alternate path. It's a disaster relief organization that retrains military veterans as emergency relief workers and taps into not just the the experience and the the presence of mind and calmness that they have in stressful situations, but taps into their desire to serve their their community. Remember, we've, we've got an all-volunteer military. The vast majority of people who serve are doing it as volunteers. They write, raise their right hand. They swear the oath. They want to do something good for their community, for their country, for the world. Uh, a lot of them come back. Most of them come back. They want to continue doing that. What is so tough for a lot of us to wrap our heads around is that 
people on both sides of the barricades, the proverbial barricades or the literal barricades on January 6th, claimed to be fighting for their oaths of office. So how do we talk to those folks on the insurrectionist side and say, you're wrong. The election wasn't stolen. You're not defending democracy. You're actually hurting your country. You're hurting your neighbors. There is a better way to rechannel that that energy and that sense of patriotism to, to do real good. And I think it has to go beyond messaging. <clears throat> it has to be experiential. And that's why an organization like Team Rubicon is so effective. It doesn't just talk to the veteran about a positive way to serve. It gives them the chance to do that. I, I want to go back to uh, the topic we started with, Ken, because I was remiss not to ask you about the air war in Ukraine. You are absolutely an expert when it comes to this space. And I want to close by asking you about a letter that Congressman Ted Lieu uh, sent, I believe today, to the Secretary of Defense. He and Adam Kinzinger and I believe a few others wrote a letter to the Secretary of Defense and you know, basically asked DOD to provide Ukraine the air power that it needs to defeat Russian forces. Now, I know some of this can be a slippery slope that, depending on what we do and provide, uh, you know, could bring us into direct conflict with the Russians. But spell that out for us. What do you think the line should be when it comes to helping Ukrainians with the air war? That seems to be what Zelensky needs most to hold the Russians at bay, is to arrest their activities in the air. What can be done? What should be done and explain to our listeners, what does it even mean to go the route of a no-fly zone? Yeah. Providing equipment does not put the U.S. or NATO in direct conflict with Russia. So I am all for that. Now, the Russians, of course, will uh, will drop that nuclear bogeyman all over the place and, and make that threat. I think we call their bluff on that. When it comes to the no-fly zone... We have to be smart in addition to symbolic. Let me first explain what a no-fly zone actually entails and then talk about the realities on the ground. What a no-fly zone would require, it's not just keeping Russian MiGs or Sukhois from crossing an imaginary line and and chasing them back. An effective no-fly zone would require killing a lot of Russians on the ground. Everyone holding a shoulder-launched SAM, a man pad, they have to be taken out if you're going to establish air dominance. Uh, You have to neutralize every threat on the ground, every radar threat, every uh, surface-to-air missile threat. And that means reaching inside Russia as well, because obviously Russia and Ukraine share a long border, and there are missiles inside on that Russian side of the border that you would have to take out to establish uh, that that freedom of flight over Ukraine. So a no-fly zone is an incredibly involved proposition that would require uh, attacking a lot of Russians on the ground and to do it right even inside Russia. To me, that on the face of it is is potentially disqualifying. But then you add the efficacy of a no-fly zone And I think it puts the issue to rest. Most of the damage being done to Ukrainian cities right now is not from bombs falling from Russian planes. It's from heavy artillery and standoff cruise missiles. And a no-fly zone is not going to do a lot to stop that. 
So that's why I say we have to be smart in addition to symbolic and a no-fly zone just isn't smart tactically. Well, Ken, I, I think you've, uh, you've put it as eloquently as anyone I've heard put it. And in, in some ways, I, I wish you were uh, in power, my friend, at the moment. Maybe <laughs> maybe we'll be one one day lucky enough that uh, they'll nominate you for uh, a sec def or a related job because that's the sort of clear-eyed moral leadership I think we do need to see. I think the Biden administration has been doing what they can, but uh, there's, there's additional steps that we likely could take. Um, I always try to end us on a positive note. I self-style as Mr. Brightside. So, uh, Ken, always want to get to know the person we're talking to. Uh, what cons- what, what's your embarrassing admission in terms of what you do with your spare time? Something you maybe normally <laughs> wouldn't admit to, but like if you've got an extra two hours on your hands uh, today and no one's looking over your shoulder, you're like, all right, I'm going to go watch blank TV show or what are you going to go keep yourself busy with that you might blush about in public? It's funny. I never have an extra two hours. Okay. Um, <laughs> there you go. But... That's embarrassing. <laughs> if I have an extra 20 minutes, my son and I, he's nine, will sometimes curl on the couch and watch these, they're called clean memes. And it's just a, a 20 minute sequence of the most idiotic, um, contentless, um, like YouTube memes, and we'll just be rolling on the floor for really no good reason. You know what? I'm not that embarrassed about it. I love doing that. I would do it every day <laughs> if I could. <laughs> well, good. Ken, you've given us a reason uh, or an outlet to melt our brains if we need to, which these days <laughs> you watch the news for too long and you're going to want that outlet. Um, Ken, I can't thank you enough for joining us today. And I do really encourage folks to listen to your exceptional podcast, Burn the Boats. You guys have been doing really good coverage, especially on Ukraine and having terrific guests. So for folks who want to stay up to date, uh, tune in. Ken, thanks for joining us. And thanks for all the work you're continuing to do for this country. Thanks so much, Miles. uh, And I would say the same to you. Keep it up. All right. Thank you for joining, folks. We will be back next week on Speaking Up with some excellent guests next Tuesday. Join us at 12 noon Eastern for a conversation with Representative Abigail Spanberger, a member of Congress from Virginia and a former CIA officer. We're really looking forward to that discussion. Thank you for joining us.